The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. what some would call tragedy, others would call farce, I might call both. We're going to have a whole number of people on the show today to try and make sense out of what was an insane election, and maybe that we can't make sense of it, but damn it, we can try, and we're going to do that. Uh, got some great people coming up, uh, political scientist Tom Schaller will be on the show, political strategist Jordan Karp will be joining us. Uh, we'll be talking to some some anonymous folks from the Betsy Riot, which is a civil disobedience organization fighting back against our crazy country's gun laws. But to begin, what the heck's going to be going on with our economy? The stock market crashed right after it looked like Donnie was going to win, but uh, it seems to have recovered. Obviously, a lot of other economic implications. So we might as well have somebody on that knows more than I do about this, which is probably almost anybody. So we have on the line, if I'm so lucky, Dan Dicker right now, who is a columnist with The Street, author of Shale Boom, and uh, generally smart guy when it comes to economics and markets. Are you with me right now? I am, Cliff. How's how's the bourbon drinking coming? (laughs) You can never have enough Jefferson's Reserve in the house. uh, It it wasn't enough two nights ago, that's for sure. No, I I did do my part. I woke up Wednesday... uh, I try to make it a habit during the week of not getting to a point where it will be painful for me to take my kids to school the next day out of respect for them and and maybe me too. But uh, I'm not going to lie and say that Wednesday wasn't a tough morning in every way. Um, Before we start with the economics, you want to give your your general thoughts on on, as the first person I'm speaking with uh, on the radio after this election, what your thoughts are? Well, well, it's... uh, Just as a human? (laughs) Yeah, it's it's the ultimate nightmare. I mean, we've given we've given life to the absolute worst underbelly. Uh, you know, I always thought uh, had within it, but for a very long time, at least during my lifetime, had kept uh, pretty well tamped. And um, you know, this guy, this this guy, you know, somehow managed to leverage all the all the worst qualities that are inherent in all of us in some ways, and and. And uh, and do it in 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 such shocking and, and unsophisticated and, and gross kind of uh, language that right. I think we were all kind of uh, you know amazed at how how well he he managed to leverage this this hatred. Um, yeah, and, uh, I guess I can up. say about him is you know he's an incredibly ignorant man. I can say a lot more bad things, but let's start with not a smart guy. Likes to think he is. Business dealings are terrible. Uh, just about everything else. One thing he is really good at, though, <clears throat> I guess two things, like combine them. Combining an absolute shamelessness um, with uh, an ability to understand how to apply that shamelessness to win over people at sort of their lowest common denominator. That is something he's quite good at. 
And yeah, he figured I think he's, he's, con- yeah. he's consistently been able on you know on TV and and now with this election to to leverage stupidity to a level that you know I never thought was possible. And hatred too. I think you yeah. know I, I think there's places that a lot of us wouldn't go. Um, that he's just fine going. Uh, so maybe there's others among us who understand how to leverage hatred and stupidity, but just would never do it because our moral code wouldn't let us. And then most people probably just don't have that deep an understanding that he seems to have almost instinctively. But when you combine that shamelessness with his, the fact that there's no morality there, I mean, that's how you get de- demagogues and con men who are pretty much one and the same. And uh, that's what we have now running the United States of America. It's, um, I, you know, again, tragedy, farce, both. I'm not sure what to say. Let's, let's maybe we'll transition and say. So now that we know we've got this con man running things, what what are your thoughts? Uh, your specialty is energy, but you're a guy of mark of the markets. Uh, what do you think we should be looking for? I mean, you know, what should we be worried about, and what this guy might do to us economically? Well, I, I, look, there's there's a lot of ways to get deep in the weeds on on some of his economic proposals, but but the the the, the easiest way to look at it is that you know he's moving backwards to, you know, a very very bad strain of Reaganomics of of top down tax cuts, and that's where it'll start. And um, then, of course, you know, bottom up uh, reduction in in a whole bunch of of uh, regulatory. Um, um, uh, governors on 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 economics and uh, in general, it's going to. I think it's going to impact very negatively on consumer spending and and ultimately the economy. It's going to send us into a second recession. Now that didn't you know kind of happen immediately. You know when the when when the, the markets found out that Trump was likely to win, they dropped seven hundred points. Right, and almost almost as, as soon as he made you know his his acceptance speech. Or he managed to put four sentences together without the words "rigged" or or um, a joke or or something insulting or crooked or uh, anything like that. All of a sudden, um, you know, the markets sort of took some hope from that that he he might not, in fact, you know, lead with the same level of lunacy that he ran a campaign and rallied back. But I think, right. I honestly think that, you know, if he follows through on even, you know, a third of the promises he's made from an economic standpoint, that this rally that we're seeing in the stock market and the, uh, you know, the bloom that's on this rose from a lot of the hedge fund managers that I talk to is, is going to be very, very short-lived. And, you know, I, I, I think... Do you he, think he's going to eliminate the, you know, with obviously... Paul Ryan, Mitch McConnell, and partners Dodd Frank. Do you th- do you see that going bye bye? Well, I think he will try. I think he will try to do a lot of things. I mean, when he when he laid out his his first hundred days plan, you know, it's it's like reading a fairy tale. It's like reading, you know, something something uh, like Snow White. Uh, he just, well, also, let me say quickly, Dan. I don't I don't want to interrupt you, but I want to make sure for people listening, you know, that we deal in realities here. So I'm not going to pretend. You know, the Democrats are always fighting with one hand tied behind their back because they actually respect uh, democratic and societal norms. But anybody who, they got to a point finally in 2013 where they eliminated the filibuster for for judges who were below the Supreme Court level because these guys wouldn't appoint anybody otherwise. We're dealing with Republicans now. We know the minute that something is okay, they have a will to power where they don't care about societal norms or they wouldn't have held up a Supreme Court 
seat open for a year. So let's be honest with each other and say they're going to get rid of the filibuster the moment they need to do it. Scott Walker is already saying they should do it. So, so for people who might be listening to this and think, oh, well, the Democrats have 48 senators, they can filibuster. Well, they can, but I'm pretty convinced that right away the Republicans will chuck that overboard the minute they need to. So realistically, uh-huh. <clears throat> having 52 votes, I think the question is, can they get rid of Dodd, Frank? Uh, are there a couple of Republicans that will not go along for the ride? And I guess that's the question. Um, but you're not here to be a legislative analyst, which maybe you want to be also. I don't know. You know a lot of stuff. But on the economic side, if they do eliminate Dodd-Frank, what – I mean, do you think that sends us even to, in, faster and, and into a deeper recession? No, this is – you know, Dodd-Frank is, is one of those safeguards that has served its in, – in, in a lot of ways has already served its purpose. The banks have in many ways uh, adapted to it already. They didn't, did not see it uh, turning around at this point. So I don't think that there will be that kind of economic you know, disaster we saw in 2008 from an elimination of Dodd-Frank. But there are other things that are working that he, he looks to eliminate – that could have almost an instantaneous effect. The dropping of Obamacare, for example. I mean, the the, the pressure that it puts on the working class in order to come up with ins- new insurance premiums that will now need not be covered by Obamacare, you know, will put consumer spending in, the, in a tailspin. If there is even a, a hint, for example, of a rejiggering of, of uh, sovereign debt, you know, which he talked about during the campaign with the Chinese, and that'll send the credit markets into an unbelievable tailspin. You know, there's, there's, if, he, if he really tries to, to get rid of NAFTA, and uh, he'll start a trade war, not just with, you know, people who he doesn't like, but people who he supposedly does. I mean, the Canadians ship to us uh, several million barrels of oil a day. They're part of NAFTA as well, you know. Right. There's lots of things that you can look at where, you know, Dodd-Frank may be the, the least of our worries economically. Some of this stuff is going to instantaneously impact in a negative way uh, on the economy and send us, uh, you know, spiraling with, with heavy inflation uh, into a second recession. Yeah, I mean, he's shown, obviously, that the, the uh, danger, too, I think, is, you know, um, just foreign policy and economic markets are two things that don't react well to uncertainty to people just shooting their mouths off about, well, maybe we'll throw this alliance overboard or maybe we'll just, you know, stop paying our debt. We'll renegotiate it, you know, these kinds of things. And as we know, even if he doesn't fully mean it, he says these things constantly. Listen, we're going to have to go to a break, uh, Dan, but we will be right back and let's, let's continue this conversation and uh, perhaps we'll, we'll, uh, we can figure out uh, even more so how to protect ourselves against uh, what could be a, a Trump uh, recession. Does that sound like a plan? Or at least I thought yes. that was a plan. Yes, sir, Cliff. Maybe. I thought you were breaking. I thought I was breaking, too. I don't know. Oh, I am breaking. See, I get things right, just I'm a little bit slow. We'll be back in a second. <laughs> Follow Leslie on Twitter. Just go to www.twitter.com slash Leslie Marshall, and we'll be sure to share your tweets. Welcome back. This is Cliff Schechter. I'm sitting in this afternoon for Leslie Marshall. You're listening to the Leslie Marshall Show. We are, again, going through the post-election insanity, I can only call it. Uh, I'm still having trouble saying 
President-elect Trump. I suppose it'll get easier as time goes on. <laughs> Maybe not. Um, I'm lucky enough to have Dan Dicker here with me. Uh, Dan is a very smart guy. He is a columnist for The Street. He's author of Shale Boom, an energy expert, all-around economics expert. So, so let's continue, assuming you are still with me here, Dan, and, and uh, talk about uh, where we left off, which is, you know, presidents with big mouths saying things that send markets spinning. Uh, worries about that, yes? Well, let's, let's, you know, let's look at something. First of all, remember his election was sort of predicated upon helping all those states in the Rust Belt where he, he dominated on the election, you know, and, and, and he's, he's basically... Yeah, sadly, I sit here in Ohio and nod my head. Yeah, and so <laughs> he's basically promised, you know, to get all the coal miners their jobs back to make Akron, again, the, the center of Tyre and, and to, to bring the, the auto industry somewhere where it was somewhere in the 1950s. But, you know, he woke up this morning, and, and when he put out this 100 days plan, I mean, I, I didn't see anything like that in there. But what I did see was a huge, supposedly revenue-neutral, $1 trillion infrastructure package. Um, you know, talk about the, the fantasy of all the fairy tale of all fairy tales. He's going to walk into a Republican Congress and propose a $1 trillion infrastructure spending bill, which is entirely out of the playbook of the liberal Democrats and Hillary Clinton. <laughs> And so, I, and I was going to say, get this I thing. actually agree with him on, 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 on a, I don't believe in obviously, you know, not finding the money for it somewhere like him. I can think of plenty of places to find the money for it, but I do believe in it. But yeah, Paul, anybody see Paul Ryan going along with that? Right. It's like, you know, we saw, we saw Mitch McConnell this morning when, when they talked about term limits, he kind of shook and said, that, well, we're, we're not, we're not going to talk about that. I don't think in the Senate, I don't think so. You know, this is, this is what Paul, Mitch McConnell will be in the Senate until he actually has fully transmogrified into a turtle. You know what I mean? And like until he actually takes that life form, he will not leave. They can't force him out those doors. And so, what, yeah, and, continue. And Sorry, I couldn't, couldn't help myself. Is that the orange balloon head has claimed that this entire infrastructure package will somehow be privately funded and revenue neutral. So this, a lot of these things, when you dig into them, you know, like, like we've talked about, like you've said, Cliff, all along, now that they've elected this guy, they've got to take full responsibility. They've got to eat him. They've got to own him. And when he right. can't deliver all the things that he's promised he's going to deliver, that's when we're going to see that this entire thing was a sham. It was a barker. It was a carnival act. And, and that's when I think the rubber will really hit the road. And it won't be long inside his presidency. It won't be long. It'll be 100 days at the most. Yeah, I mean, because the big problem here is, you know, I, and I haven't been shy. Anybody who listens to me, I'm on the Majority Report on Fridays. I'm on Twitter at Cliff Schechter if you want to follow. Uh, you know, to me, th th this, this has been a long time. You know, it's been worsening over a long period of time and by, by far not the most prominent or the only person in Paul Krugman, many others, where the media has kind of pretended that there's two competing ideologies here that may, both make sense, as opposed to one side that impeached a guy over sex. Then, then Bush came in and we all tried to say, even in the manner in which he won office, we all tried to give him a chance immediately and say, you know, he didn't just grab office. He didn't have... Supreme Court justices appointed by his dad and people in Florida controlled by his brother, the governor, help him get in. And after 9-11, we even more so gave him, you know, free reign. Um, and, and, and then, of course, look what they did with Obama for eight years. So I'm all out of, and nobody, all out nobody of that. Blamed, nobody blamed him for the attack on 9-11. That's right. And I'm all, at, sort of, I'm all out of for, that. For a Benghazi uh, attack. Right, I've got we no all, sympathy we all left in me. something terrible had happened. That's all. We, we figured he, right, 6,000 miles away... Right, 6,000 miles away in a danger zone, 
you know, they've made they made that into something they spent we've spent more time on than Pearl Harbor or 9/11 in, in committee. But they never took any responsibility for 3,000 dead people in New York and Washington D.C. in our country. No more. I, I will blame them. I mean, this is theirs. They said they could do this better, even though they've always done it worse. They said they can run our economy better, even though it crashed under Bush and it did better under Clinton and Obama than any of their stooges. They own this. That's the one thing I can say for sure. Economically, infrastructure-wise, terrorism, every other way, they own this. And I'm not. They're not. They're not walking away from Trump. He's their creation. They own him. And we better. Everybody on our side better keep that in mind to make yes, sure am, that we don't. Yeah. I am with you, and this time, this time we may not, we we won't give them the benefit of the doubt. We won't assume that everybody tried their level best, and bad things happen. But we'll blame right. them, and we'll hold them accountable this time Maybe. around. That's right. The sixty-plus warnings that Bush got that nine eleven was on its way, and 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 you know, as opposed to Benghazi, you know, um, yeah, no, I mean, and, but and back to the economic side of it again. I mean, it's not to say that, that there wasn't a role in deregulating a lot of Wall Street for a number of years. Or in fact, some blame could probably be put at, at at Bill Clinton's feet, but at the but same my, time, my, my my concern right now is is on the energy side. My concern right now is that he may in fact try in his first hundred days to actually eliminate the EPA, not just uh, drop um, uh, regulatory uh, uh, safeguards on fracking, regulatory safeguards on nuclear energy, regulatory safeguards on drilling in on public lands, but that he may in one fell swoop try to take the entire EPA out and open up everything to the, all kinds of insanely dangerous practices that are already going on wow. at the state level, but on the federal level would be disastrous. Not, not even getting to an, uh, you know, a talk about climate change and where we'll be 50 years from now in terms of the, the, the temperature of the planet, but in terms of where our rivers will be five years from now if those regulations are taken out in one fell swoop. That's what frightens me the most. From an energy and point. can they? You, you may know more about this than I do. Do we? Can we? Do they do that with an act of Congress? Just get rid of the agency? I I don't know, Cliff. That's a great question to ask. I know that they can they can really in, in one swell, fell swoop uh, slash a lot of the regulatory safeguards that have been put in place in the last eight ten years. And and um, they can do that. Well, they, they cut funding. They've done that to the ATF, you know, to stop gun regulation. They've done it to Social Security Administration to harm them. They just cut all of its funding. So we do know they can do that, even if they can't eliminate it. We're going to have to go in about 30 seconds. Do you have one final thought? Well, I, I guess my final thought is keep the, keep the bourbon bottle near because January is still a couple of months away, and, and we're going to have to prepare. So Okay, everybody get prepared and... Cliff, and I drink some bourbon. By, I've been heartened by the protests I've seen in the cities, and I hope they keep it up. That's that's one thing that has made me feel better. Thank you so much, Dan Dicker, for being on. Once again, columnist of the street. Uh, you should go follow him on Twitter. I'll give you his Twitter account in a bit. And uh, we're off to a hard break. Want a free podcast of Leslie? It's as easy as going to www.lesliemarshallshow.com. Welcome back, folks. This is Cliff Schechter. This is the Leslie Marshall Show, and I'm sitting in for Leslie right now. It's, what is it, 4.33 p.m. in the afternoon, Eastern Time. We had a great conversation uh, with Dan Dicker about economic implications of electing uh, the orange one. Now I think uh, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about politics, what happened, how can we prevent this from ever happening again in the future, assuming we do have another election in the future. Um, I'm lucky enough to be joined by my friend, Jordan Karp, who is 
a Democratic strategist for a long time. He's also a principal at Catalyze LLC, which, for all disclosure here on, for, on the radio, is a direct mail firm that I'm also a partner in. Jordan, are you here, my friend? How are we doing? Uh, we're doing well, uh, I think. I'll just say to everybody, because, you know, I think we have to brag a little bit that we won our races that we worked on Tuesday. We did. We had a pretty good night uh, as as the two of us, the strategists, not, not so much for the party. I think, uh, you know, that's what happens when you live in a bubble. Yeah. Well, I, I will say congratulations to uh, Hamilton County Commissioner-elect Denise Driehaus. That gives us a majority here in Hamilton County, which is the Cincinnati area. And County Clerk of Courts, Aftab Perival, who uh, another another one that we're really proud of, and, and Covington Mayor Joe Meyer. So, in the uh, northern Kentucky, Cincinnati area, folks, oh, there was some butt-kicking going on. But uh, now that I've really sort of sat here and, and uh, tooted our own horn way too much, I'm getting a little embarrassed. So why don't we talk about some general politics in this country of ours that didn't go quite so well. What the hell happened, Jordan? Um, I think that what happened is going to take a little bit of time to figure out, but I think that as Democrats and progressives and you know, an activist, we need to kind of look more inward in, in what happened on Tuesday night and not look uh, outward and blame people and other other things. I think it was uh, the fault of our own and, and really no one else. This, this race was imminently winnable, um, and we didn't do it ourselves. Uh, yeah. If I were to... Now, is that an overall strategic view of things or tactically because there's some places that we didn't advertise that perhaps we should have there's a broader economic message we didn't have that maybe we should like i'd like to hear on both levels what your thoughts are sure so hillary clinton does not win the michigan primary against bernie sanders right yep Yep. first caucus uh, in january she was going to yeah yeah first caucus of the year she almost loses to bernie sanders in iowa those two data points suggest that you may have a problem with white working-class men, just a fact. She also so, lost uh, Wisconsin, if I remember correctly, yes? I believe so, too. So yep. right then and there, if you have a problem in your sort of base vote, if you will, um, you're probably that's probably going to carry over to the general election. So right from the outset, you know you've got maybe an issue w- with those kinds of voters. And then you go from that to doing stops in Texas and opening up campaign offices in Utah and saying that you may win Alaska, you know, and spending sort of time, resources, and, 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 and candidate visits to Arizona, and it just, and you end up not even winning Pennsylvania, is, uh, is, is a kind of malpractice, frankly, uh, that's, that's pretty bad. Yeah, I mean, I, so I don't have the math in front of me. What was the final electoral tally? Do you know offhand? For, well, right now for, it's 290, uh, 232 without Michigan being called. Right. So with Michigan, so what I'm saying is, because considering how close Wisconsin and Michigan were, if I'm correct, Pennsylvania was a little bit further away, right? So yeah, all she had to do was was switch, I think, 1.6 percent in between Wisconsin, Michigan, and Florida, and she would have had over 300 electoral votes. Right. That's what I was getting at. Is you know because the, the, those other places were so close. Yeah. Ugh. Now, do you and think that that and that a broader economic message? Because let's go back to 1992, for example. And Bill Clinton in 2008 with Barack Obama both ran on messages where economics was much more at the forefront. My biggest problem with Hillary Clinton's campaign is I didn't feel like there, there – you know, when you said, well, why am I voting for her? 
I thought there was a great story about breaking a glass ceiling, and, and that's, of course, incredibly important. But there wasn't a – economics in the end are, are always have to be a part of this. And this was my one critique as time went on. And again, look, I'm not acting like a, I'm some genius. I, I made plenty of mistakes too. Um, but on the, uh, just to, to sort of get it out there on the economic front, I always felt like she didn't have – she didn't marry that breaking the glass ceiling with an economic message of here is what I will do to make your lives better. And on top of that, didn't go to those places. She didn't step foot in Wisconsin after the, the uh, uh, convention. Maybe she went to Michigan once or twice. She didn't advertise in them. She even pulled advertise. She didn't advertise in Michigan and Wisconsin at all until that last week, when I'm sure they maybe were starting to see data that was getting scary. And she they they pulled advertising for a while in Pennsylvania. So of course all of us thought the data must be saying great stuff, but there was no economic message there and a way to sort of share it. Am I being crazy? I mean, I've been crazy before. I'll be crazy no, again. So tell me. What no, you not think. A, not at all. And I think that this honestly, this is part of the problem with. Uh, putting a campaign headquarters in hipster Brooklyn, New York, frankly, that they, they, when you surround yourself each and every day when you're commuting back and forth to work, when you're around a place that, that's doing really well, and you don't, uh, you, you may look at the data and say, I don't understand why these people don't like, you know, don't think the country's doing great. I don't understand it. Uh, you know, uh, you get into this bubble mentality and you're really not looking at, you know, I live in upstate New York which at, in a county that went 58% for Trump. Almost all of my friends, frankly, voted for Donald Trump. They're not racist. You know, it, it, I think it's really easy to say, well, they just didn't want a woman to become president. Your if you look at the suck, actual, the if you look at the actual data here. I'm kidding. Yeah. <laughs> if you look at the actual <laughs> data here, you know, voters voted for Barack Obama once or twice and then either didn't vote or voted for Donald Trump. And you and I have had this discussion for years that I think too many Democrats, uh, uh, you know, strategists at least, and candidates, think that voting is an intellectual exercise. It is not an intellectual exercise. It's an emotional one. And That's I think a post-enlightenment uh, uh, trap that you can get caught in that suddenly we're all thinking beings and we've gotten beyond the amygdala, which yeah, man, don't fall into that trap. Thinking that, like, oh, you know, it's amazingly historic that, that Hillary Clinton would become president. Well, yeah, but if you think that way, you're already voting for Hillary Clinton. So you've got to, you know, really drill down and say, you know, voting is an emotional exercise. And Donald Trump really made a potent argument that he was the outsider, that Washington has been kicking you in the teeth every day your entire life, and Hillary Clinton is the embodiment of that uh, feeling that you have. And Let me throw look, another – oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was just going to say, if you look at the data, too, I mean, Barack Obama had in the exit polls a 54% approval rating, which, mean, which means that Barack Obama has got, you know, as we all know, connects on those, with those economic issues with most yeah. voters. It just – Yeah, it, and he would have – he points us. Right. I would say also – so economic issues are hugely important. I think it's also very easy to become – and I can say this as somebody who grew up in downtown Manhattan and lived in Washington, D.C., um, it's easy to become sort of culturally a little bit in a bubble too, because I'm, you know, so look, I live in Hamilton County. I'm in a part of Hamilton County in Cincinnati that does pretty well. I'm a, I, my friends aren't all Trump voters. I, I have a few I know who are, but most are not. But I think the difference is when you're in Brooklyn is it takes a lot longer to leave your little sort of area and get to a place where the cultural attitudes are very different. I can drive 15 minutes from here 
and be in a place where the cultural attitudes are very, very different. Do you think that maybe played into it? Because you can do that where you are in New York too. You're not in New York City. You said you're upstate. And so even if you're not, that's not your little area of where you live, you know it's there because there's a lot more of it. Oh, um, yeah. And when, well, I have friends. I mean, like I have friends who own guns and drive pickup trucks. And, you know, I mean, it, and, again, most of my friends are, 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 you know, voted for Donald Trump, frankly. And, and they just did because they didn't feel like Hillary Clinton spoke to them. They just didn't feel like she spoke to them at all. And, and it's, it's crazy to think that you had a Democrat running for president that didn't sort of take a I'm going to fight for you attitude to these voters and kind of just wrote them off or took them for granted or something really just went off the rails. And I think that it's, it's you know, there's probably, it was a death by a, probably a thousand paper cuts here, which is, you know, people in Brooklyn saying, ah, oh, I can't believe that these people, they're going to, you know, they, Donald Trump is unqualified and they're going to figure that out. Well, no, they don't care that Donald Trump's not qualified to be president. All they care about is that Donald Trump would go in there and he would shake things up because, and he just summed it up perfectly of the insider-outside messaging and that's that's really what changed it. And and again, I mean, uh, Wisconsin between Wisconsin, I think in and uh, Pennsylvania or, or Wisconsin and Michigan. I mean, you're talking thirty thousand votes difference. It means all you had to yeah. do is switch fifteen thousand minds, fifteen thousand or one. Visited there a little bit more. You know, the other thing is is I think as a an outsider, even if he wasn't the outsider we were used to, you know, I mean, we being the American public. Um, yeah. Barack Obama, the guy with the funny name who, you know, was African-American, it was still definitively an outsider when he yeah. was running for, you know, he'd been only in the Senate a few years, had done other things. Uh, do you think even, you know, Hillary Clinton's personality didn't, doesn't lend itself very well? I, she's not the, the, that kind of, she's not comfortable with the kinds of emotional appeals that both Barack Obama, Bill Clinton, and sadly Donald Trump on a more shameful level are all comfortable with. But then you add in her her background, and you know her husband when she was there passed NAFTA. Um, some of these things get a lot tougher to sell. I mean, do you think it was maybe personality? It was bio? It was both? I don't know. I, she's not. She's clearly not the most comfortable campaigner. Um, I think that she just couldn't connect. Uh, it just, you know, just speech wise, I just don't. I don't know. It seemed like the campaign was kind of a slog and kind of a, a chore. And she just wanted to govern, and like that's great. But you know, the campaigns are job interviews. At the end of the day, you're asking voters to hire you for a job, and I just don't think she interviewed well. And right. and and you know, regardless of how, again, of if you think he was had the right temperament for the job, Donald Trump at least showed a passion that I think makes him a, a, made him a, a worthwhile candidate, as ridiculous as he was, and as unqualified. Well, and again, I, I think he's completely ridiculous, as I'm sure you do too. But I do. You know, you you and I were in the bag from the beginning, so we're not trying to figure out what wins over you and me. We're trying to figure out what wins over a bunch of white guys, not all of whom were very very poor, but some of whom were very middle class, and yet still culturally could not feel comfortable. And and, and let's be honest here, there's sexism in there too. But there was racism with Barack Obama, you know. I mean, these things are there, and they're going to cost you some votes. But clearly, as you're pointing out in Wisconsin um, and other places that were so close, that they were winnable. Yeah, I just think it's really, it's really like, and it's my visceral reaction too on Tuesday night. Like, it's really easy to say, 
oh my god, the voters are so stupid, or oh my god, the press didn't do their job. And I know you've been, you know, harassing uh, people. Well, I very much don't think they did their job, but that, that doesn't mean I think that's the only thing that's no, going but, on here. There's, but, there's numerous but, factors. Know, it's really easy to say everybody else is really stupid, but they're not. I mean, at the end of the day, they their vote is worth as much as anybody else's, and they made a choice because they felt like Hillary Clinton did not speak to them. That and that is that's the fault of Hillary Clinton and the campaign, not of the voters. That is not their fault. At the end of the day, a lot of those people voted for Barack Obama twice and didn't vote or voted for Donald Trump. That is not the voters' fault. They were not. Well, here's the easy question then, Jordan, and I do think this is a pretty easy question because I know two things. One that you just said that a lot of white guys, even if it wasn't the majority of them, it was a lot more of them, voted for Barack Obama than voted for Hillary Clinton. So clearly they're willing to vote for a Democrat. Second of all, something else that I can't prove factually yet, but I think I can prove factually by the existence of everything that happened this campaign over the last year, Donald Trump is going to do an incredibly crappy job as president. He doesn't have, it's not just the temperament. He doesn't have the patience, and he's way too lazy for the complexities. There are going to be things that are missed. There are going to be things that are ignored. I, I could be wrong about this, but I really, really think he's, he's not. He's going to, you know, within a few years, if not sooner, that, that approval rating is going to be well down the dumps. So, I mean, do you, do you think Donald Trump knows how a bill becomes law? I mean, honestly, no. No, he, he, I know he doesn't because he said before that he was going to call a special session of Congress to do something. He had no idea he couldn't do that, <laughs> right? You don't, you don't call a special session of Congress. That's not you. He said he was going to enact something, and he also said he was going to remove Paul Ryan as speaker. Heads yeah. up, pal. You can't do that either. Um, so – so I, I think – and, and the, the, it's not just the, the ignorance. It's the willing ignorance. It's the fact that they couldn't get him to sit down and prepare for a debate for 15 minutes. So unless something changes in this man and he becomes a very different person than he's been for 70 years of his life, he's going to be a terrible president because you have to pay attention to details or at least hire competent people to do it who aren't just people that say they like you a lot and you're really smart and cool but are people that actually know what they're doing. He's proven he doesn't do that either. He takes hangers on that, that – Play to his ego. So we have a couple minutes left. I want to. So, so uh, assuming both of these things are true, what, what, how do the Democrats win back these kinds of voters? Uh, in, or do they, do they, do they not even try to? I think they should try to. But I want to hear what you think they should do in a 2020 election, or maybe even 2018. Sooner. No, I think I think you have to. I think you have to build a real economic message um, that is a little bit more populist and, and actually looks to the future. I think you know part of Hillary Clinton's sort of problem was the baggage of 25 years in the public spotlight just sort of wore on her. Uh, but I think you have to look at 2018, 2020. I mean, there are a lot of state house races that are key to redistricting after 2020. Uh, governorships, we have a really tough map uh, in 2018 in the midterms in the U.S. Senate elections. So I think we we got to sort of, you know, like we did after 2004, I think we've got to rip this house down to the studs and kind of, and, and kind of rebuild. Um, it's a good test in a way because the the Senate map is so tough, uh, and you know, and, and as you said, we we only won what a half dozen congressional races or something like that. That it really was, it, was, it was poor. I, I, and I, again, like not to, not to belabor this this malpractice point, but like it, three weeks ago, we were talking about taking back the House, and at the end of the day, we lost the presidency and and picked up two net Senate seats. I mean, give me a break. <laughs> hey, we won a governor seat somewhere. Where'd we win? We won. Well, North Carolina looks like we're going to win, doesn't it? That would be. That would be. And I'm kidding with you. That doesn't make up for anything. Although it would be nice to win that race. It was. Cooper looks like he could be a future 
potential star. Star, yeah, Um, agreed. So we have one minute left, and I just went to the future potential stars. So before we get get kicked off by moving on to to, uh, how we pay the bills here – what, who, who are those potential stars? Who do you see? I'm going to throw one out that I like a lot. Obviously, I do a lot of work on gun violence prevention. I think Chris Murphy of Connecticut's awesome um, and passionate, whatever. You tell me. Who do you think? Who's out there? Cory Booker. Corey, if, yeah. you've, if anyone's ever seen Cory Booker speak in person, he's a like, former Division One football player, Rhodes Scholar, just amazing, amazing, passionate guy. All right. Anybody else before uh, I must bid you a fond farewell? I think you should run for president, Cliff. <laughs> no way. Thank you, Jordan Carp, so much for being on the show. Again, the principal of Catalyze, Inc., longtime Democratic strategist. And uh, we'll be talking to the Talk Radio News Service next to find out what we need to know. If you miss Leslie on TV this week, catch up at LeslieMarshallShow.com. in your pocket. Go to leslingmarshallshow.com forward slash members. And welcome back once again, folks. This is Cliff Schechter. I am sitting in for Leslie Marshall. It's the Leslie Marshall Show. On the line, we have Victoria Jones from Talk Media News on to tell us about uh, some of the goings-on in Washington, D.C. today, like the famous, now infamous, what's called famous Obama-Trump meeting today. Victoria, are you with me? Yes, I am. How are you? Very well, thank you. Well, thank you for being here. So uh, that looked like quite a meeting those uh, gentlemen had today. Yes, I think it was. Uh, It was about an hour and a half meeting, which Donald Trump said was uh, supposed to be 10 to 15 minutes and went on for an hour and a half. Um, That's actually not what Josh Ernest, the White House press secretary, said later in the briefing that I was at. He said that President Obama had... Um, much more time uh, scheduled and set, a time for the, set aside for the meeting than 10 or 15 minutes. So there's a little bit of discrepancy between President-elect Trump's understanding of the length of the meeting and the time that the president had actually set aside <laughs> for the meeting. So oh it already begins, huh? So that's just, uh, I, I just think that's interesting to mention. Anyway, President Obama called the 90-minute meeting excellent, and... Um, and Trump said he looked forward to receiving the, um, President Obama's counsel. At the very end of the remarks that we were privy to, um, Trump said that Obama was a very good man. Uh, oh. He also said that it was a great honor being with you, and I look forward to being with you many, many more times in the future. Um, he really seemed, Trump really seemed to be a little awed, A-W-E-D, awed by the entire experience, I thought. Yeah. Well, I think that that's been part of uh, it with Donald Trump for, for a while now, is he kind of wanted to be a part of this whole thing, and now he is. It'll be interesting to see how he behaves. What about his meeting with uh, Paul Ryan? Uh, yes, he met Paul Ryan, the House Speaker. He's got the most powerful post in Congress. Interestingly, an aside on this, uh, Ryan, who had said just a couple of days ago that even though he's in constant contact with his members, he's not yet started to reach out to anybody for about the election for the speakership, which is supposed to happen next Wednesday. That's his re-election. According to insiders, 
he has now started lobbying furiously to keep his job as speaker, um, including within... Victoria, we're coming up against a, a hard break. Thank you so much for all this information and uh, for being here. We look forward to talking thank to you again soon. Thank you so much. All right, bye. The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. trying to make sense of what in the hell happened on Tuesday. Had some great conversations with Dan Dicker of TheStreet.com and formerly CNBC about the potential economics of a Trump administration. We talked with Jordan Karp, Catalyze, uh, a little bit about uh, what what's going on politically, what we can look to the future. We're going to continue that conversation. I am lucky enough to have with me Dr. Tom Schaller, who is a professor at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County of Political Science, I should add author of Whistling Past Dixie and the Stronghold, columnist at the Baltimore Sun. Have I missed anything, Tom? No, that's pretty good. All right. How are you, my friend? Good. How are you? Pretty good, I think, uh, as well as uh, we can expect uh, at this point in time. Um, I could uh, be, you know, go into deep theories here and whatever, but why don't I start with a very general, what the hell happened on Tuesday? I don't know, to be perfectly honest with you. I mean, I, I keep looking at the data, and you, you know, geographically and demographically, and I see, you know, race patterns, and I see gender patterns, and, uh, you know, um, certainly I see urban-rural splits, but I, you know, I think on the macro level, Trump did to the nation what he did to the party, and I don't mean that in the metaphorical starts with the letter F and it's for, you know... <laughs> Four letters long. I, I mean, I think he did something in the Republican Party by rejiggering the, the the policy combination there, by taking issues like trade and immigration and even Social Security and Medicare and turned it into a different kind of party that was, uh, you know, more sort of proletarian and less corporate and less elitist, and basically stole you know union protectionism, which used to be you know, characterized as left-wing communism not too long ago by Republicans and folded that into the Republican primary and separated himself on that and immigration, which was also, a, you know, it was a border and security issue, but it was also a taking our jobs and uh, and right. driving down our wages issue. And so a he tribalist kind of issue. Yeah, so he, he took immigration, which, yeah, it was the security and it was an other issue and it was a race issue, but... For many people, it was an economic uh, message buried in there sometimes with the heavy dollop of racism on top. And then he clearly took the trade issue uh, uh, out of the Democratic portfolio. And then, uh, unlike Republicans like Paul Ryan, he, he said, we're not going to touch Social Security Medicare, sort of the foundations of the national social welfare safety net. They skew toward older voters, which is where the Republicans are trying to go anyway with older, whiter voters. And, right. and that was... 
plenty to win the nomination, and I think it also changed the calculus for the general election. Do you think that um, perhaps uh, the calculus did not change for people on the Hillary side in the way that it should have? In other words, seeing what he was doing, that maybe they should have been uh, fighting a, a different kind of war than they were fighting? Yeah, I mean, maybe what they should have done is said, uh, you know, Trump is uh, says he's going to, you know, not touch Social Security and Medicare, but look at his big tax cuts. This sounds like, you know, Romney. This sounds like Republicans like Bush in the past. And he's going to end up empowering Paul Ryan to run his whole budget anyway. And so I wouldn't be so sure that he's not going to touch Social Security and Medicare and make him defend it at least, because he could, probably doesn't even know what the payroll tax is, frankly, uh, and, and, put, and put him on his heels for that. Instead, you know, she, I don't think she ever mentioned it, right? And um, Not much, you know, if at all, to, no. Yeah, she needed to challenge his claims uh, to, to say that he's talking a good game, but maybe he's not going to deliver on this. And if you look at the tax cuts, it's, this is really Romney economics or Bush economics. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, it almost was like by being rejected by those guys, because obviously when he moved in a more nationalist direction, some of the traditional, you know, conservative, particularly economically conservative types like Romney and and Bush decided that they didn't want anything to do with him. I'm sure there are other reasons, too, obviously. Um, I'll take them at their word that racism bothered them and other things, although they've been playing with that fire for a long time. But... But um, in a manner of speaking, that may have helped him too, right? I mean, look, if, if Romney was a guy that was pretty loathed by working people by the end of that campaign in 2012, and maybe, you know, that, that he was able to pick up all these new voters and he didn't lose so much in the process. Right, because, like, when people say, I mean, there, I think there were some race elements to it, but there were white people who voted for Obama twice and then voted for him. And on the front of it, on the face of it, you're like, who are these people, right? Like, who are these people? that make this ideological jump and they don't care about all this language and Alicia Machado and all the stuff that got come out about his, you know, his gender behavior. They don't care about that. I mean, many of them are men, of course, right? And, you know, what they care about is their economic anxiety. And if Obama is talking a good game, some of them couldn't vote for him because he was black or they thought he was a Muslim or he didn't believe in America or he was soft on crime or whatever. But many of them did, and you don't need a lot. Like, 3% of the country is all you really need to shift this election, right? I mean, Obama won, you know, 3.7. Hillary is going to win by maybe 1%. So we only right. needed to move it about 3% from his from Obama's 4% victory to Hillary Clinton's maybe half a percent victory in the popular vote. And that's the difference between winning the Electoral College and losing it because it wasn't a uniform shift. It was a bigger shift in the Rust Belt, right. and then some shifts elsewhere, and then a counter shift where with Latinos and some other votes, you know, she did better than Obama. And so, um, you know, there were, by my count, 12 states decided by five points or fewer. You know, when Obama beat McCain in 2008, there were only five states by, decided by five points or fewer. So there were a lot more states on the knife's edge. And when that's the case, and I think Nate Silver was right here, when you got more states on the knife's edge, a very small movement, 2 or 3%, flips more states. It's pretty logical. No, yeah, I mean, that part is logical. But, I mean, um, I, I did find that interesting, and one of the reasons I wanted to have you on, because, you know, I remember when you wrote Whistling Past Dixie about the South, and it seemed to me that the biggest shift here, and this is where maybe, you know, Hillary Clinton, the Democratic Party, failed on an economic message, 
was Northern Whites that Obama won. In other words, you you know the message, the, the argument you made that he was going to have trouble with Southern Whites, that, that the Democrats were always going to, no matter what they did, seems to be exactly right. At least Whites that are sort of older and lesser educated from the South, not new transplants in places like North Carolina and Virginia. Um, but Obama won, did pretty well with Northern Whites, working Whites and, and middle class, and you know, and that's why he won all of these states. I mean, the margins in places like where I am here in Ohio, Illinois, not Illinois, I'm sorry, Iowa, Wisconsin, the second district of Maine, which is the northern rural part. I mean, some of these we're talking about 10, 15 point shifts all among this group, right? And, and that didn't happen the same way in the South because they were already against Obama. Right. So there's two things. One is they were already against Obama, and that might have been about race. And, of course, as I talk about Winston Past Dixie, another reason whites were never there for even Democrats before Obama is that there was those, those are the least unionized states. Like literally North Carolina and South Carolina had the least unionization of any of the 50 countries in the states in the entire country. So there was no union apparatus to move white voters who maybe were triggered by racial sentiments, but their union was signaling to them that your job, your livelihood, your lunch pail depends on this. And so, right. yeah, you're going to be in a you're going to be a coalition with some black workers and maybe some Latino workers, but that's a winning coalition for you, and that's what's best for your family and for your community and for your for your, for your future. So there was never a union apparatus to kept, either kept or move those voters back in the Democratic fold. But in the Northeast and the Midwest, there was. Now, as we move across time and unions have declined, that message, that machine, hasn't been there, and Democrats have been able to keep them. But I think Hillary Clinton only got 53 percent of the union vote, which is kind of too low. And so Trump basically picked off a lot of those voters, whether they're in northern Maine or northern upstate New York, where I'm from, or western Massachusetts, or Lowell, or places where the textile mills used to be. And then all along, of course, the steel, coal, and auto uh, corridor parts in the more western uh, sections of the I-90 corridor that basically runs from Boston to, to, you know, to, to Minnesota. Right. Right, and you can see it in those numbers. Um, we've got a quick floating break coming up here. I'm going to kind of get back to you on this in a second, Tom. Let's talk more about kind of this, what happened here, union voters sort of leaving the Democratic Party. I think that's a huge story. Want to listen to Leslie with zero commercials? Become a podcast subscriber today. Go to lesliemarshallshow.com forward slash members. more of Leslie's opinions? Check out her blog at www.lesliemarshallshow.com. Welcome back once again. This is Cliff Schechter. I am filling in for Leslie Marshall. This is the Leslie Marshall Show. Uh, we're having a conversation today, a sort of wake, if you will, for uh, the, this past election on Tuesday. What happened? How we can prevent it in the future? We're talking to Dr. Tom Schaller right now, who's with us, a political science professor at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, and author, columnist of the Baltimore Sun. So, Tom, we were talking a little bit about uh, northern whites starting to vote a little bit more like southern whites, and maybe it's the absence of unions, union weaknesses, I guess, right now that did that. Maybe Scott Walker and uh, John Kasich here in Ohio and, oh, what's his name, Snyder up in Michigan knew what they were doing when they attacked unions, huh? Yeah, I mean, it does set the table, I think, a little bit for what's to follow in the sense that if you undermine unions and uh, 
you get people to start to think of them as this bad institution, uh, then that weakens the Democratic attachment to it. And then you have Trump coming in with essentially the union message, right? Like, it's the same message, a message that was characterized, as I said, as like red-wing communism when it was carried by Democrats, uh, protectionism, you know, anti-free trade, and so forth. He's carrying the same message, but it's coming from a different messenger, and it, he's not a union guy. He's clearly not a union guy himself, right? He's probably, he probably doesn't use union labor whenever he can avoid it, right, this guy? So, right. you know, it, it, it's, a, it's like a devil, devilishly uh, brilliant strategy. Right. I mean, again, if you're willing, if you, if you have that kind of shamelessness, and he's always kind of had that when it comes to promoting himself, his products, you know, fake PR people calling in and talking about his sex life to the New York Post and things like that, then why wouldn't you, would you have any trouble getting up and sort of saying that even though you had, you had bought cheap Chinese steel and you have your ties made wherever, Sri Lanka or somewhere, that you're going to be the guy to protect and if you're, you know, protect workers. And if you're selling that message and the other side isn't doing a lot of talking about that, I mean, I will say, look, you know, having lived now for about seven years that I've lived in Ohio, um, I can say that the trade message here, there's a reason why Sherrod Brown does so well here. That is the number one issue he runs on is trade and protection, protecting the, the interests of workers. Um, I think a lot of other Democrats in, in other parts of the country don't fully understand that, it seems. Um, and and so when you – I mean, I'm kind of interested. So when you looked at, uh, at, at workers, at work, white working class sort of in the South – I mean, did you find the, the, that racial – because there is this big argument now, right, whether it's mostly racial mostly, and, and, you know, sort of uh, the, the views in terms of gender norms, you know, whether the, the North is so much more progressive than the South when it comes to that. Do you think um, that, that in some ways I've, – I've seen some pieces on – I think Paul Rosenberg wrote one for Swan, the Dixification of places like Wisconsin and Michigan. Have you seen anything that you looked at where it seems like that instead of – you know, the North theoretically won the Civil War, but in the end, it's Southern culture that's moved North? Well, you know, I don't, I don't know that it was a, a regional Southern culture, and I don't know that this was a culture war, you know, uh, election, although, I mean, you know, I, I think the Democrats and Clinton wanted it to be, and that's why most of their attacks when they weren't directly on, like, fitness for office and finger on the nuclear codes were about, you know, Trump's mannerisms and his intemperate language and his hatred and so forth. And you think, okay, well, that should mobilize more Democrats to come out, and I'm surprised it didn't, especially affected communities that you would think saw their lives and livelihoods at risk. But also because um, I think if you're if you're white and your your and your tendency is to think, okay, my life is worse because of global forces. I don't really care about Donald Trump's racism, and if I think my life is affected because Minorities are getting Obama phones and immigrants are coming to the country and taking my job. Then my economic, his economic message is actually magnified by all the racial signaling. And so it doesn't really matter. The, uh, Hillary Clinton pushing back on that uh, is only reinforcing the second group, and it's not really making any difference to the first group. And so, right. I mean, Trump kind of threw the kitchen sink in there. It's like globalist, which is like international Jewish bankers are at fault, media elites <laughs> yeah. are at fault. Uh, you know, uh, trade deals and Washington sellout between the two parties is at fault, or maybe the less white person in the town next to you is at fault. Take your pick. Right. Um, the fact that he got that far, I've been very critical of 
the mainstream media, you and I have had various roles, I think, over our lives in that media. I, I specifically think that some of what the New York Times did, particularly and CNN, on these on the, the running the email stories nonstop, um, have has been shameless and led. I mean, it doesn't take a lot. You can look at studies now that said that thirty about a third of Hillary Clinton's coverage were, was about emails. Less than ten percent of Donald Trump's was about his taxes, for example, which he wouldn't release. Uh, do you have any thoughts on on the the role the mainstream media played in this? I sure do. I mean, everybody's talking about the fact that the email stories got as much coverage as all the policy and the issue coverage for either candidate the entire time. And that's unfortunate. I, I do think this was going to be a candidate and identity and character race more than a policy and issue race to begin with. But, like, if you're looking for other examples that are really easy, and I'm surprised nobody mentioned them, we spent an inordinate amount of time in 1992, and you and I are both old enough to remember and, by the way, in 2000, looking at Bill Clinton and then later uh, George Bush's Vietnam-era record. Well, Donald Trump, been, I can't remember a single story about his deferment. And he got four student deferments and one for uh, a bone spur in his foot or his heel or something, even though he played college sports. There was right. zero investigation of why that guy didn't show up for the Vietnam War. Zero. Yeah. That's exactly so right. If I the mean... media, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but if the no, media no. is rigged against the Democrats, rigged against the Republicans, how in the heck does that happen? Somebody please tell me that. Well, it seems like it's rigged against any sort of deep probing of anything, any investigative uh, research. It's, it's, it's sort of rigged to become a personality contest because that's what draws eyeballs the most. You know, he attacked her, she attacked him, and then there's this sense of false balance that we've all talked about, but I won't stop talking about because it it's there. Uh, and only very few times did I see someone get so bold as to put in a Chiron, you know, when he made a certain claim on TV that it wasn't true or someone challenged. So, I mean, you know, I mean, hell, CNN sitting there with Corey Lewandowski as, a, as giving people the propaganda line of the Trump campaign while he's getting paid for that, you know, by, by Trump. I mean, it's, it's incredible to me. So, I mean, I mean, I don't, you know, I know this isn't your area of expertise. I, you know, do you think, is any of this stuff in any way fixable? Is it possible to improve on any of it? Are you still with me, Tom? Oh, oh, sorry. I put it on mute just to keep the background noise. Sorry, but, uh, No, no worries. To improve the media performance and... Is there anything election? we can do right now, being that no, in social norms, it used to be the media did it out of duty. They performed a certain way. We're about to run out of time, so if you've got 30 seconds, any thoughts on it, let me throw it out there. Well, I do hope that the media does some self-analysis about how, you know, they basically did this because it drove numbers and sold clicks and ads and clicks and eyeballs, and they really don't have an interest in co covering a policy substantive debate. And unless we have a BBC or a CBC, I don't know that we'll ever get their clip, unfortunately. Well, I'm going to try to do what I can to shame them all constantly. <laughs> Thanks for coming on, Tom. Appreciate it. It's Tom Schaller, everybody. Leslie Marshall. Not left, not right. Just real talk. At 888-6-LESLIE. Welcome back once again. This is Cliff Schechter, and I am in for Leslie Marshall, and you are listening to The Leslie Marshall Show. As you know, if you've been listening already, we're trying to process what happened on Tuesday, how we ended up with a, again, this, this really pains me to say it, but I guess I have to, President-elect Donald Trump, yes, the orange one himself, I uh, had some great conversations today, learned a lot, um, 
from Tom Schaller just now. And we, we also chatted with Jordan Karp. We got some political implications. Dan Dicker talk, told us a bit about the economy. We're now going to talk a little bit more about an issue that, it, that is close to my heart, which is gun violence and gun safety. And we are lucky enough to have one of the members of Betsy Riot on the phone, which is a new, newish, let's call it, group that's been around for a little while that, that are engaging in acts of civil disobedience um, to, to make sure everybody in this country uh, is aware of what is going on and how the gun industry has gotten a hold of our legislators um, and too many propagandists in the media. And so why don't we invite uh, to talk to us right now, let's, we'll, we'll call her Betsy. And uh, we'll find out more about what this group is up to, particularly what they will be up to in Donald Trump's election. <coughs> are you here, my favorite Betsy? I'm here, Cliff. Hello. How are you? Well, um, well, we've had better weeks here at Betsy Riot, but we have picked ourselves up and thrown back a couple of hard drinks, and we are ready <laughs> to give this country the fight that it needs. Well, let me know if you need some uh, good... Uh, Northern Kentucky bourbon, and I can uh, send that your way. Cause I, There's I always know. room in our lives for that. As there should be. So why don't, let's start off by talking a little bit about, uh, you know, who you guys are and what your sort of, how you were founded and what you, what you did before the presidential election, and we can move to what your plans may be after. Yeah, um, well, the Betsy Riot is a decentralized movement of people across the country who are fed up with the stranglehold that the NRA has on the United States. Um, we are also fed up with the pathetic attempts to control and check that industry, the failures of the gun control movement, and we think that more honest, straightforward, and aggressive tactics are called for to crush this disgusting source of human misery. Those are strong words and ones that I think I've often uttered uh, myself, certainly with regard to the NRA. Um, now, before we get to, to um, the, what you guys have done so far, because I want you to talk about some specifics. You've done some pretty cool stuff. Um, some people, let's say the people push back and say, well, hey, you know, they, a couple of measures passed, you know, ballot measures. Nevada passed background checks on the ballot um, on Tuesday. And California, in fact, is now going to do – um, background checks to sell ammo, which is a pretty forward-moving comparatively, right? What would be your response uh, from your point of view to people who say that kind of thing? Um, I think that, you know, those are positive steps forward. Um, it's like bringing a paper towel to a flood. So, <laughs> sure, that seems like a step in the right direction, and uh, it involved a lot of hard work in the states where, where those measures passed. It is a drop in the bucket of what's needed to put out this fire that's taken over the country. Right. I mean, you know, and I am very happy with, with that these measures passed, of course, but I do often ask, why is it that we haven't, um, nobody's even talking about licensing and sure. registration of firearms. Oh, my God, you can't say it. Yeah, I can say it. We register every other dangerous item, uh, that is, and many of them, for example, cars, that actually have a purpose other than killing. 
Um, so to think the government can have your social security number and know that your car's registration, but somehow, oh my God, if they know that your your registration of your gun, there we have tyranny, is idiotic, and the NRA gets away with that kind of crap all the time, saying that anyhow. So I'm I'm with you in terms of we need a real left flank um, that is pushing much harder on a number of these issues. So. Give me an idea of your sort of modus operandi, if you will. Yeah, um, well, what, you know, what, um, one or two examples of things you've done. Uh, yeah, some of the exciting things we've seen happening around the country in the last few weeks. Um, one of my favorites is that a, a couple Betsy's in Roanoke, Virginia, took a piece of simple children's sidewalk chalk and wrote the accurate description "murder lobby." on the retaining wall of an NRA field office. And um, there was a massive communal, uh, I think I'm limited in words I can use on the radio, but um, uh, pants <laughs> crapping um, among yeah, the like yes. gun liquors in that town. Um, they acted as though, you know, she had thrown a Molotov cocktail through their window because... A Molotov cocktail even? Sorry, I couldn't help <laughs> And uh, they, uh, you know, at their at their core, these pathetic gun cowards are babies, and um, they talk about their protection of lives and property, and they are simpering cowards. And the simple act of accurately describing what that office is, which was the the house of the murder lobby in that city. Um, sent them in a tailspin, and so that was awesome to watch. And we've also seen I saw you got a lot of press all around that country. too in Roanoke and in Virginia in general, correct? Right, I'm in yeah, in Virginia. That's yeah, where it was. Yeah, um, and we've seen um, Betsy's and cities all over the country in the last couple of weeks have been hanging overpass banners, um, you, you know, calling out the NRA uh-huh. as the murder lobby. Uh, we've seen them in some cities putting photographs of gunshot wounds on, um, in gun stores and gun offices, uh, putting fake blood on gun magazines and drug stores. So there's been, you know, the, the Betsy's get very creative and, yeah. uh, we've really been seeing that roll out in the last few weeks or couple of months. Well, good. I mean, we obviously need a huge amount of cultural change. And I'm, I'm guessing that, the sh- you know, you get some of your inspiration from the suffragettes. Um, we do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, certainly. Go ahead. I'll let you talk. Sorry. Oh, no. I, um, yeah, we're, we're really inspired by, by the suffragists of the early 20th century. And they, um, their history has been written out of, you know, most textbooks and schoolrooms. And we don't learn about them growing up. But they were... Um, bare-knuckled street brawlers who did what it took to push for massive um, social change in their lifetimes, and that's exactly what we're after here. We are tired of this ridiculous idea that we're supposed to constantly um, extend an olive branch to so-called responsible gun owners who have not lifted a finger to... um, stop the scourge of gun violence in this country. We're sick of acting like we give a damn about Second Amendment rights when the people who are peddling guns don't care about our rights and our children's rights to live. And um, we think it's ready to completely change the conversation in this country. The win of Donald Trump only reinforced that conviction. 
Yeah, and, and I, I agree. I mean, look, I, knowing social movements and studying them, obviously, you know, civil disobedience and what you guys do is nonviolent, which I want to stress um, that, that we don't advocate that. And, and so changing culture often, you know, you need to sort of shock people's conscience about what's going on. I think the, the especially I remember – I'm trying to remember if it was one of the parents uh, from Newtown, or was it, uh, what's her name, uh, from Aurora, who wanted the photos to be shown. Right. Um, of what, uh, I can't even believe I'm not, um, uh, Phillips, Sandy Phillips, um, of their, their lovely daughter who was gunned down in Aurora. Because I think we, you know, it's kind of like hiding the, the caskets from Iraq coming back. We're, we're hiding the results yep. of this slow motion tragedy that is taking place in this country. Daylight scatters cockroaches and it would scatter the NRA. And we allow these gun fetishists to sit around and wallow and masturbate over their gun shootout fantasies where they'll be the, you know, virile ninja that comes in and saves the day. And the fact of the matter is gun violence is disgusting. It's wretched. It blows holes in the bodies of children. The reality of gun violence is nothing like the fantasy version pushed by the NRA. And the American public needs to get real with that fact. It's also, besides everything you said, all of which, by the way, happens to be very true, it's completely unnecessary. That's the thing is that we're acting like, you know, that, that the way to, to sort of uh, balance even, you know, I don't, I don't want to get into a big constitutional discussion because there's no individual right and that's a bunch of garbage, but that's for another time. We've got more time to talk about it. But even just if you want to say people should have the right, whether it's a constitutionally guaranteed right or not, to own a rifle to hunt or should have the right to, to have, you know, a handgun in their house for protection, which I think are, are things are legitimate to, to have a debate over. Um but to, to go from that to we, we can't even do the most basic things to regulate these deadly weapons that have only grown more dangerous, that have only grown more um, violent and, and, and do more damage. Uh, I, I love what you guys are doing because I think people should have to, to confront the damage to human bone and tissue and what this does to people. So I, I want to uh, hold on. One I want to talk a lot more with you about this, uh, Betsy. Sure. But we have to go to a break for a couple minutes, pay the bills, and we'll be right back to continue this conversation. Leslie on TV this week. Catch up at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Sign up for our free newsletter. Go to www.lesliemarshallshow.com. Welcome back once again. This is Cliff Schechter, and you are listening to The Leslie Marshall Show. I'm filling in for Leslie this afternoon. We're sort of at the bottom of the hour almost, another sort of 10 minutes left. We've been discussing last hour 45 that I've been on, uh, the shocking result of the Tuesday election how we live with it, what we do about it, how we make it through this time by fighting back when we need to fight back and doing whatever it takes to protect the values that uh, we care about. Um, I'm lucky enough right now to be joined by a fabulous person from a fabulous organization. Let's call her Betsy from Betsy Riot, a civil disobedience organization that has been 
doing a great job fighting it back against the lies uh, of the NRA. Are you back with me, Betsy? Hi, Cliff. I was, uh, while we were on break, I was just giving some thought to this Trump train wreck, and it occurred to me that, you know, the NRA shoves assault rifles down our gullets every day of the year under the ridiculous pretense that we need a well-armed populace to prevent tyranny in the United States, while our peer nations seem to manage okay. And here we are, only one of those developed nations is on the brink of inaugurating a literal fascist into office. So I would counter point. that so far guns have not been doing such a great job for us. In fact, and the irony, of course, is that um, the NRA, which likes to, to you know, scream, lie, freak out about, oh my gosh, about tyranny, basically did their best to invite this guy into office. They spent $14 million dollars to elect Donald Trump, and I'm not claiming that they were the defining feature of getting that done. They they happen to have some some probably insight into the lunacy that was his candidacy because they've been appealing to the same insecure, angry white male you know base for a while now that became his base. Um, right. But point being, you know, they love to cry about about tyranny, but tyranny really is just somebody of a different color in your neighborhood, as far as they're right. concerned. It has nothing to do with, with with a fascist taking over because we've got a guy that admires Vladimir Putin and admires uh, the former Saddam Hussein and admires many others and has out loud, and yet they got behind him uh, all the way. Exactly. They, they mistake the ever so slight slipping of white Christian male privilege as tyranny, equality as tyranny to gun lickers, and that's exactly what Trump and the NRA have been playing to. Yeah. So now um, you guys see stepping up your efforts, aiming in uh, more sort of as opposed to just the NRA in a, in a direction of of protesting Donald Trump's inevitable. Ugh, I can't even find just saying this hurts me. Um, <laughs> inauguration as president of our country. I, I, I sometimes don't know if I'm really awake or not. And this is actually happening. So I apologize. Yeah. You know, um the Betsy riot, it's about guns because guns are the nexus, right? They're where misogyny and racism and nativism and just pure bullying, unbridled capitalism, um, it's where they all intersect. They all intersect in this market force called guns, and they're protected by the NRA. But what we are against is all of that. We describe ourselves as neo-suffragettes and punk patriots, and the entire Trump brand is an affront to everything we stand for as Americans. So the Betsy riot will always centrally be about guns because guns are the real and symbolic enemy of actual true freedom in this country. But we, we are opposed to his homophobia, his misogyny, his nativism, his racism. Um, he's a disgusting, fascistic human being who every American should be crying out against. I couldn't agree with that sentiment more. Um, yeah, you know, it's funny. You, you make that connection really well between, you know, the guns are sort of the nexus here. I write a column for the Daily Beast, and I would say probably 75%, probably more than that, of my columns are on this issue. 
um, because I find it does. It embodies so much of what is the modern right. You know, the, the, the fear, the loathing, the misogyny, the racism, you know, uh, they all sort of come together around worship of guns. It's sort of a, and, a and you know the frightful other, the cult. Other, the other narrative involved there is the failure to understand that policy needs to be based on statistics and reality and not on fantasy narratives of the heroic individual, right? So, you know, gun gun pushers have this idea of themselves as this kind of hero of their own movie and the gun as the tool, you know, that they're going to use to save the day. And right. people who make policy need to be looking at what happens when you pour hundreds of millions of guns into a country. And, yeah. I, you know, to my mind, somebody who's advocating guns has automatically checked out of the realm of statistics and scientific evidence that we should be looking for in people who, who set public policy. Well, you know, it's, it's not a shocker, I think, that when it starts overlapping with people who, who don't believe in evolution, who believe right. supply-side economics actually works, who think that... that global warming is <laughs> a hoax, right? Yeah. Global warming is a hoax, and more, more, you know, and more birth control leads to more abortion and sort of mm -hmm. every other thing that's been scientifically disproven <laughs> would also sort of hang their hat on, on you know, hey, I'm going to be the guy who's going to pull that gun out, you know, even though, like, my body moves so slowly because I'm probably 200 pounds overweight. Sorry, that was mean of me. But you know what? I, I mean, so often the correlation between some of these guys who think that, that – who have this fantasy of who they are, and when you see them in reality, it's nothing close. Um, so apparently they're, they're not – they also don't believe in the science of, you know, eating healthily, healthy. Um, I think that it appeals – the gun appeals to people who um, they either are or feel like they have failed. You know, they, right. they feel like they're not getting the acceptance and applause from the culture that they anticipated. Disempowered, and, right? They, yeah, they turn then to this this tool, this toy, and I think that's why we're seeing such an uptick in gun worship recently. Is that these um, you know scared, ignorant white men? They feel their privilege slipping a little bit, and so they reach for a gun. Yeah, you know, and it's funny you bring this up because I was you know I didn't get to we didn't talk at the time, but I think about like at that Trump rally. Where you know these these folks who say how much guns supposedly help and it saves everybody and whatever. Meanwhile, some guy pulls out a sign, and somebody yells "gun," and I swear to gosh, the yeah. whole place starts crying like a bunch of little children. Exactly, exactly. They're scared of a sign. They, you know, <laughs> you would think if somebody yelled "gun," they would all stand up and sing the national anthem, right? What's what's yeah. <laughs> what's to be afraid of? They they want that that freedom in the room. Um, but you know they are—they are fearful, paranoid, xenophobic cowards at heart. I think uh, that would be the way I describe it too. So you don't—you don't have any definitive plans because you guys are very decentralized. So you don't know what other folks have planned for uh, once Trump is inaugurated, do you? Um, no, we don't know anything specific, and frankly, I probably couldn't share it <laughs> if I did. I know that the entire ethos of Betsy Riot is based on a kind of, you know, um, guerrilla mentality. You know, we are people who we feel, number one, failed by the gun lobby and our government's response to the gun lobby, but we also feel failed by the mainstream gun control movement. And it's uh -huh. um, milk toast 
kind of pablum efforts to quell the NRA and its apologism and olive branches to people who are at their core rotten. And so... Yep. Um, you got about 30 been, seconds left or less, so sum We've up. been scrappy from the beginning, and we're amping up our game. Well, thank you so much. I, seriously, I appreciate having you on. Thank appreciate you, talking uh, with Betsy Riot because you guys are doing important cultural work, and we need things to change. Um, thank you so much, everybody, for listening. It's been a pleasure, as, as difficult as it is talking right now, and uh, I guess I'll be back sometime soon. This was Leslie Marshall Show. Thanks again, folks.